Welcome to EdTech Insiders. In this podcast, we talk to educators and educational technology investors, thought leaders, founders, and operators about the most interesting and exciting trends in the field. I'm your host, Alex Sarlin, an educational technology veteran with over a decade of work at leading EdTech companies. Mitchell Stevens is a sociologist of higher education at Stanford University and the co-director of the Stanford Pathways Lab with John Mitchell. He's the author of many research papers about credentials, student debt, workforce development, and higher education generally, and has edited and authored a number of books on higher ed, including Creating a Class, College Admissions and the Education of Elites, and Remaking College, The Changing Ecology of Higher Education. Professor Stevens hosted a virtual convening at Stanford in mid-2021 to frame a, quote, applied science to support working learners. This involved over 180 participants from universities, nonprofits, philanthropies, and edtech companies that serve working learners, such as Ripen, BrightHive, Straderline, Gladio, ForthRev, Roblox, and PathStream. In this discussion, we're going to discuss the recommendations that came out of this convening, as well as the role of EdTech in helping shepherd the future of lifelong education. Mitchell Stevens, welcome to EdTech Insiders. Thanks, Alex. Delighted to be here. So you recently convened a large number of education thought leaders around the topic of how to develop an applied science to support working learners. What was the origin of this project, and and why are the needs of working learners so important? Well, long-term and short-term motivation for this one. Long-term is, as a student of alternative educational forms, I have been studying the rise of private capital in education provision for adults nationally and worldwide for some time. The the more proximate motivation is the COVID-19 pandemic, which really suspended business as usual for the conventional post-secondary education sector and and got surfaced pretty core questions about the the importance, need, and cost of physical co-presence, of residential-based higher education, and a kind of emergency emphasis on alternative educational forms. And my colleague at UC Irvine, Richard Aram, and I uh, got the opportunity to write a policy brief recommending ways in which the federal government might assist colleges and universities, conventional schools, in their response to the COVID-19 pandemic. And one of our recommendations was that some portion of federal relief to colleges and universities ought to incentivize the production of new kinds of data and infrastructure to support systematic inquiry on adult learning and lifelong education. In other words, to use this disruption in business as usual to encourage a research program that would be targeted on doing better science on what kinds of learning and educational programs work for which kinds of Americans and which industries. And that idea really did have some legs, at least among our colleagues nationwide. There is a, you know, a, a growing recognition that the, 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 the science infrastructure that we inherit from the 20th century 
is really organized around the conventional delivery of conventional college and university credentials in a physically co-present way in the late stages of, of childhood. And on our view that, you know, that way of thinking about human capital development is just not tenable anymore. Yeah. I, you, you mentioned the late stages of childhood. So that's sort of the traditional college age between 18 and 22 or 18 and 24. And when we talk about working learners, I'm imagining that it sort of starts at the low end at that type of age, but goes to a much, much more advanced ages. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. The The term has only recently come into policy parlance, but I very much like it, though I can't take credit for the term. What I like about it is that it embodies a recognition that, in fact, the majority of people who are pursuing formal education beyond high school are doing that while simultaneously participating in the labor market. And so that has been the case for some time. But the, the scientific imaginary has long focused on, an, on a kind of full-time student who's foregoing paid work in order to, to, you know, to be in a conventional school. And working learners sort of disrupts that presumption, I think, in a, in a powerful way. And yes, I think focusing on adults over the age of 22 or 25 who, are, who have yet to obtain four-year credential is is a, is a good operant definition for this group. That makes a lot of sense. And, and that is a group that is in true need of either traditional or alternative credentials to be able to really enter the information economy at a, at a sustainable level. That's, that's absolutely right. The parallel work of mine and many others across the country now is a kind of a growing recognition that you know, possession or non-possession of a four-year college degree has become a very faithful dividing line mm-hmm. in American life, separating people who can reasonably expect to have stable, well-compensated employment through adulthood and those who cannot. One related project that I just want to mention before we dive into some of the, the details is the Stanford New Map of Life, which takes as its premise that in the United States, as many as half of today's five-year-olds can expect to live to the age of 100. So you've worked with Professor Ilana Horwitz from Tulane University to drill down specifically about, you know, what does this extended lifespan mean for education and what does it mean for for a working life? Uh, Tell us a little bit about the Map of Life project and how that sort of relates to the needs of working learners. Yeah, I'm delighted to talk about that and happy to be on the new Map of Life team, which is a project of the Stanford Center on Longevity and was just released to the public last month. The basic thrust of the new Map of Life is that lengthening lifespans are, are both an opportunity and a challenge for Americans. The opportunity is that we've been given the gift of more potentially productive years to invest in ourselves and our loved ones. The downside is that the institutions that we inherit from the 20th century have not been organized for us to optimize on those longer lives, and they've given us longer lives quite inequitably. Let me say a little bit more about both of those things. Um, As my colleague Laura Karstensen says many times, what we've done with longer lifespans over the last couple of generations is essentially added those years uh, to old age. 
is that the best way to be spending additional years? You know, could we add those years to midlife or young adulthood or childhood and delay old age? And what sort of in institutional infrastructures would we need to build to do that? How might our education system, for example, look different if we presume that people were going to be in the productive labor force for five, 10, 15 years longer than they have in the past? The other challenge is that long life is very much a gift of class privilege. And a lot of that privilege gets mediated through formal educational attainment. So essentially the the more formal education, especially college education, people are able to experience in their lives, the happier and healthier and better compensated, frankly, their working lives will be. So there are important sort of institutional and equity questions that are kind of bound up in the lengthening lifespan. That's very insightful. And I mean, I'd love to drill down a little bit into the, some of the, the inequalities that stem from education in, in America right now. I, you know, as you mentioned, college has become, you know, college educational attainment, post-secondary attainment has been increasingly correlated with many different measures of, of what we consider sort of success in America. That's economic success, health outcomes, longer lifespan, lower chance of, of drug addiction. It reminds me of the, you know, the deaths of despair and the future of capitalism, which was a, an, an excellent sociology book yes, uh, that, yes. uh, you know, a year or two ago from, from Princeton economists and sociologists. Can you tell our listeners a little more about the backstory about why educational attainment has become so determinative of everything else in American life? Yes. And this is a fairly complicated and sobering story that the sociologist Alana Horwitz and I sort of wrote through together. Basically has two components. One is that a great deal of propensity and disposition toward school, a desire for school, the capacity of basic skills that enable one to succeed in school are laid in the very first years of life. So really from Infancy, infancy to middle school are really crucial periods for putting children on a pathway to desire to do well in school, to take pleasure in, in school, and to enjoy its benefits. But because we live in such a stratified society and children grow up in highly class and race segregated environments, Opportunity to learn, as my colleague Sean Reardon calls it, is very unequitably distributed. So, and, and this does a lot to explain why you know, variation in learning and educational attainments by the time one reaches middle school are highly correlated with post-secondary completion. The second half of the story is that the way in which Americans have organized educational provision after high school is that you know if one either hasn't completed high school or doesn't have the material resources or the academic capacity to enter and succeed in college, one is basically systematically disadvantaged in labor and marriage markets for the rest of one's life because Americans sort of use possession or non-possession of a college credential to sort job applicants, to short, sort potential marital partners, to develop their friendship networks. So there's kind of a, a two-sided problem here, inequality in early childhood, 
and then tying a lot of social benefits to successful completion of college combine to create the, the inequality problem that the new map of life emphasizes. You're citing that it, it really starts very early in life. And one of the quotes that jumped out to me from the report was, you know, and I quote, U.S. higher education is akin to an elevator in a structure in which most people enter on the upper floors. I thought that was such a great quote about, you know, how higher education institutions can sort of select for people who already have so many social advantages. And I have to credit my colleague Alana Horwitz for developing that that metaphor, but I, I think it's I think it's actually quite soberingly true. Consider, for example, that if you haven't finished high school, you're essentially ineligible to enter college. So that sort of categorically excludes from the opportunity machine of college, you know, anybody who has has been so poorly served by either the education system or the health system or the criminal justice system that they haven't had the the benefit of of finishing college. But then also because college provision is is largely organized as a consumer market in the United States, people are have a much easier time cons- you know entering college if they have family wealth to support them in that endeavor or if they have access to you know certain kinds of information about scholarships, grants and loans that are unequally distributed. Many people who who have the savvy to enroll in college, even without significant financial means, you know, essentially mortgaging their own futures by acquiring federally backed debt to to pursue that. So, yeah, you kind of have to you have to be at a certain level of educational attainment in order to even get on the college elevator, we should say. And then the elevator goes a lot faster. It's an express system, if shall we say, if one has family wealth to bring to that project. Mm. L- let's talk a little bit about how the higher education system in the U.S. also has these different tiers of education. So, you know, the the, the highly selective four-year institutions that a lot of people think of as sort of synonymous with college, including Stanford, mm-hmm. are maybe the fastest elevators of all using that metaphor. If you can make your way into a, a highly selective top, you know, let's say 50 college in the United States and attend and graduate, you have enormous advantages and you probably had enormous advantages to get there in the first place. But there's a whole other system. There's, there's, there's a vast number of higher education institutions and the majority of students do not attend selective four-year universities. So talk to us a little bit about that sort of tiered system and how it creates inequality or sort of what how people can fall out of the benefits of college through that type of system. Absolutely. And I think this is a good opportunity to for me to pause and talk a little bit about a glass half full. Sociologists rarely get smiley face emoticons associated with them. We're kind of a frowny face industry. I do think that there are some very important uh, positive cultural values that are embodied in Americans' affection for college. We're a nation of school builders. We have great faith that educational opportunities in their myriad forms, can make individual lives better and make whole societies better. And we hope 
more equitable. And so throughout American history, Americans have, you know, created new forms of educational opportunity for their own children and also for their fellow for their fellow citizens. What we haven't done is invest in other forms of social provision that are arguably at least as important for people's flourishing. This is not a country that guarantees people employment. It is not a country that guarantees people a living wage. It is not a country that guarantees people health care, regardless of their, of their income or wealth. It's not a country that assures people that they will be housed, fed, and clothed adequately. So because we have a society that offers very few sort of guaranteed social supports for all of our citizens, we invest a lot more in, in educational provision. And so that's one of the big reasons why we have some of the you know, highest rates of college going in the United States, uh, in the world. But it also means that we enable people to build a very stratified higher education system, right, to the extent that educational provision is, you know, not presumed to be a, a project of the central government, sort of anybody who wants to create a school and charge tuition and find a constituency can can go for it. And so, you know, over many generations, that has created conditions of in which we have a highly tiered system of higher education products, if you will, that cater to variably to different class groups and serve people of different means. And in sense, you know, function at the high end, like, like exclusive clubs. They're kind of like uh, private welfare states in a sense. Like if, you, if, if one has the means and the credentials to be admitted to say Stanford university, one can be, largely assured that the the resource of a of a Stanford degree and an alumni affiliation will sort of you know follow follow me through my entire life. And that's a very you know powerful social asset. But it's really only available to you know a very small number of people who have the the means and the credentials to uh, to obtain that kind of educational treatment. And if people have sort of fewer resources, they you know they enter different kinds of kinds of markets. And one way to think about the ed tech sector at present, I would say, is we're seeing a pro- proliferation of not school forms, in part due to the market failure of the conventional sector to provide you know, affordable, meaningful college credentials that people can actually meaningfully obtain. That's a terrific synopsis. That's a really interesting way to look at Look at it that that the U.S.'s lack of sort of welfare and guaranteed guaranteed supports in so many other ways puts the onus more and more on education to be the the engine of mobility because people can rely on so few other <laughs> other I things. I call it I call it the United States of your on your own, right? <laughs> right. Uh, you are your own individual business. You know, your household is your own firm. You know, ideally the Ideally, you know, government creates conditions under which your ability to do business is is occurring in a fairly transparent marketplace. But we do we do presume that that you know my livelihood and and the lifelong employability of myself and my children is is really the responsibility of myself and my family. And then it creates this ironic situation wherein the least selective schools also have the highest dropout rates, which has always been to me one of the 
biggest paradoxes and sort of head scratchers of American education because the schools with the least selectivity criteria and often the least, not always, but often the least tuition still graduate students at, at half the rate of elite four-year institutions. Yeah, I think that's, and that's, that's true for, you know, a couple of interesting reasons, I would say. One is that elite schools, as my colleague Josef Oroksa at the University of Virginia has said many times, elite schools systematically exclude people on the basis of the things that might prevent them from graduating. So, mm. you know, they tend to not let people in who can't afford it. They can't let, they don't let people in who have children. They don't let people in who have full-time jobs. They don't let people in who had poor high school preparation. And, you know, once in a selective school, young people have access to an elaborate array of, of services that essentially assure their graduation, right? So it really is a sort of, you know, rich get richer kind of right. situation. I call it, I call it graduation insurance. <laughs> but at the other end of the distribution, you have people who, you know, whose lives are more complicated, who were not as well prepared for college in the first place, who don't have the same kind of savvy to navigate an academic landscape and who just have more pulls on their time. So, and again, this is where I think that the, the ed tech sector, you know, figured out well before many others in the conventional, in the conventional ecology that, you know, college as usual does not very well serve working adults with complicated lives and, you know, other forms of educational opportunity should probably be designed specifically for those people and those lives. Yeah. So th that is a terrific segue because this is an ed tech podcast. After all, I, I love talking about the sociology of education, but you've mentioned ed tech and its role a couple of times. And I, I wanted to drill down on that, that definition of working learners that you've mentioned, the idea that they are in, in this, in this framing employed adults who do not possess a four year post-secondary credential. And you know, one, one of the things that the report goes into is that working learners seek both education and work simultaneously throughout adulthood. They don't want to have to quit their jobs or are unable to quit their jobs to be full-time students. So let's talk about how this relates to ed tech. What models do you see either, you know, past, present, or future in ed tech that might sort of bridge this gap and allow employed adults who don't have a four-year credential to receive advancement and work at the same time. Yeah, 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 yeah. So, and you know, let's 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 start this time with the with the bad news and and with the good news. The bad news, I would say, is that educational entrepreneurs beginning in the 1990s figured out that working adults were being very poorly served by conventional colleges and universities, the community colleges, comprehensive state schools, and you know, myriad private nonprofit providers that hadn't really changed their core operations to accommodate working adults. And it is the proprietary college industry that recognized the just how poorly served millions of working Americans were by conventional colleges and universities. And we, we know what happened yep. in the first two decades of the 20th century, publicly traded for-profit institutions, which were, let's face it, universities only in name. They were training programs 
figured out how to systematically defraud millions of people and by extension, the American taxpayers by running Pell Grants and federally subsidized loans through the bank accounts of you know, poorly informed educational consumers. That was a, on my view, a sort of an, an unmitigated <laughs> civic tragedy. But there is, there is some good news here. The good news is that the, the great deal of private capital that's sort of flowing into the adult education marketplace is much more flexible and creative and, and forward thinking than, than, the, than, the, than the legacy sector. The the problem, the challenge between the glass half full and the glass half empty is that Americans have not figured out how to create a responsible marketplace for education business. It's essentially pre-regulatory. The, the, the regulatory capacity that the federal government has is really tied to Title IV provisions for Pell Grants and loans. If, if, a, if a firm is not participating in, in those programs, then then they are essentially outside of, of federal government regulation. And that's, that's just a terribly dangerous situation for working learners. I mean, I, I say all the time, you know, I can, I can purchase a used car in the state of California sight unseen and have a better sense of the value of my purchase than if I go to seek an associate's degree here. There's, there's, there's a shocking absence of information about quality and value. And the nation has just not had the political will to figure out how to, how to create a responsible marketplace. And so you promised some good news. <laughs> and I think the good news, it starts with the idea that that capital is flexible and that, you know, as that in that sort of Wild West space that is pre-regulatory, as you say, there have been some very bad actors, including for-profit universities that that have eventually, some of which have, have closed down or been regulated in various ways over time. But there are also this, there's also this ecosystem of ed tech startups that are also pre-regulatory, but that are, I think, so far at least, better willed and seem to be doing a better job at, I, I I'll frame this as a question. Do you feel like they are doing a better job? Again, the good news is there's a lot of money and a lot of creativity and a lot of, again, a, a, an American faith that, you know, educational opportunity can make people's lives better. You know, we might, we might call this a problem of an absence of regulation. I would prefer to say it's, it's actually, you know, how, how does a good actor demonstrate that, it, that it's a good actor, right? Mm-hmm. Like if I want to, if I want to, you know, sh- you know, make clear to my clients, right. Or to a future regulator that, that I deserve the privilege, right. Of, of operation and perhaps the privilege of direct or indirect public subsidy, you know, I, I have a mechanism whereby I can demonstrate that I'm a responsible player. And we don't have those mechanisms. And I, I frankly don't don't anticipate a sort of a government regulatory apparatus that's gonna be sort of nimble enough or fast enough to to address that that hazard. I do think that alternative educational providers themselves have the capacity to create to create a marketplace that would reward responsible behavior and discourage irresponsible behavior that that would, that's going to require a shall we say an economic and civic 
farsightedness mm-hmm. that the ed tech sector has has yet to mature into. Yeah, that that's really compelling way to frame this issue that that in the absence of a clear government regulation structure there's sort of a lack of i would i would call it metrics there's a, there's a lack of shared understanding of what it means to be a good actor in the adult learning space that's and, I think that's part of it alex and that's you know part of what motivated this project was to sort of think about what kind of observational infrastructure mm-hmm. a nation build at the intersection of government and business at the intersection of philanthropy and the and the research academy so i do think that that is you know that is part of it i think but another part of it is a pernicious obsession on my view with something called results both firms and their investors and philanthropists tend to want something called results and mm-hmm. these seem to be things that emerge within the space of one to three years. And they Mm. tend to take the form of, you know, completion of a program, you know, employment at the conclusion of a program, earnings on first job. But that's not how education and learning work, right? I mean, the, the value of a third grade education, right, when conveyed with quality and and accomplished with skill you know, does not show up in admission to fourth grade. It shows up in the cumulative impact of a longitudinal investment in skill development, right? No one equates the value of a Stanford college degree with the amount of money that someone earns the year that they finish college here, right? But the philanthropic sector and the VC sector in ed tech on my view is just naively obsessed with something called short-term short-term gains right and you just don't do science that way and you don't build education policy that way so this this is a really interesting point and, and it, it brings me to a, a, a one of the recommendations in the report is very much stating what you're what you're naming now which is that you know, it's a recommendation for new education providers. And it basically says they should observe the impact of their programs throughout the life course, throughout the adult lives of their alumni in a similar way, in a sort of longitudinal way, in some of the same way that traditional education researchers have looked at the, you know, lifetime earnings gains or the lifetime outcomes that result from a college education. I, I, I want to drill down on this for a very specific reason, which is that, you know, as somebody who's been inside a number of different ed tech companies myself, I think the reason why, why the companies and the investors behind them are so caught up in the short term gains is simply that they're, they're very, they're much easier to measure. There's something that, that, you know, at the speed at which ed tech evolves, the idea of saying, you know, once this student finishes this boot camp or this alternative degree, we want to see what their life is like in 10 years or 20 years. By the time that report comes out, there's been four new generations of ed tech technology. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about how ed tech companies can sort of bridge this gap, how they can think longer term without, but, but also be able to report out 
in, you know, the short term sort of business gains about, you know, we know that our learners are getting placed in jobs or we know that they're getting salary boosts. It's, well, I'm so glad you phrased it that way, Alex, because you know, here is where, on my view, you know, Wall Street and Silicon Valley conspire <laughs> to create very bad public policy frameworks. Mm. You know, shareholder value and, and, you know, and, and, and firm on the East Coast and firm valuation on the West Coast are very powerful incentives for business people. They're terrible ways of organizing public policy because public policy has to be organized around long-term costs and benefits. Mm-hmm. I hadn't imagined raising the specter of climate change, but somehow it seems appropriate this afternoon in our conversation, <laughs> right? Climate, you know, global pollution is the function of a long-term accumulation of externalities that were overlooked in the interest of short-term gains, right? And, you know, despite the the great discipline that shareholder value and firm growth give to entrepreneurs, they're terrible mechanisms for thinking about investments in civil society, precisely because they're organized around short-term metrics. Mm-hmm. And, you know, this is why this is why Americans invest in some institutions that are not subject to market forces in the same way. Religious organizations, public health organizations, colleges and universities, I dare say governments, you know, we invest in some institutions because we we recognize that they have sort of you know long-term value propositions that are not well served by market logics. Somehow the tech sector hasn't quite figured out, you know, what has been true for millennia, which is that education and human learning are long-term propositions, right? And I, I frankly I, I I think that the sector is smart enough to figure this out, whether it has the the shall we say the will. Mm-hmm. You know, to, 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 you know, to tame its own wild west, right, and commit to figuring out ways to reduce risks for everyone, including, including future investors. You know, I think we're going to continue to be kind of trapped in this sort of short-term results kind of logic, which really doesn't, does not serve the sector very well. Well, I want to push on one piece of, of that, which is that, you know, ed tech companies tend to be writ large, I would say, you know, try to sort of focus on what they call, you know, a double bottom line. They, they, they want to be successful from an economic perspective, but they also really do want to be having positive impact on their, on their, uh, on their users and learners and, and customers, however you want to define that. So the, the short term business issues that you're bringing up, the idea of, oh, we need to, you know, place our students to be able to keep the money flowing in is one aspect of it. But I would say that often the, the will to measure immediate and short-term outcomes isn't always a from a pure monetary perspective. It's to make sure that the program is actually effective and it's getting it's getting its users what they wanted. And because ed tech can be more agile than traditional institutions, knowing exactly what's happening to to the graduates or the you know alumni as soon as possible. And then weaving those findings back into the product is sort of the, the product 
ethos of some of these companies. And I, I don't, I don't, you know, I agree that, that, that the short term can blind to the long term. But I do still feel like there's a core paradox here. I mean, I look back at, you know, 10 years ago was the, the dawn of a lot of large ed tech companies. You know, Duolingo started yeah. in 2020. Yeah. If Duolingo did a study right now and said, what happened to our graduates who finished a class in 2011 and they learned a new language? Did that, did that, what did that do for their lives over the last 10 years? It would be fascinating. But the product that people were taking in 2011 is so far away from the product that they'd be taking now that it would be a little bit hard to know how to use that that data. Yeah, okay, that's good. I mean, it's a good point, Alex. And you know, let's add another let's add another silver lining to the the results oriented focus of ed tech. And again, I want to say, and the philanthropic sector that, sure. that serves them too is is a recognition that that measurement is essential, which is something that, you know, basically for generations, we've, we've, we've let elite colleges and universities off the hook for measuring anything, right? I mean, elite higher education is very much a trust us enterprise, you know, yeah, the, the, the trustees of universities, like the ones that I work for probably have very little interest in value added measures, you know, conditional on inputs, you know, how, how much value are, are, are fancy schools adding? So I think that focus on measurement does have an asset, like as you were talking about. But it's also the case that the vast majority of that measurement is opaque, right? So the measurements that seem to count are, you know, shareholder value and company valuation, right? Mm. You know, not measurable learning. That's true. You know, we the, the world got, you know, some fairly effective vaccines against the COVID pandemic, you know, not because we had a million pharmaceutical companies secretly competing with each other, right? <laughs> Under veils of ignorance, right? Yeah. We got a COVID vaccine in a year because of a presumption that every incremental insight would be shared with the global scientific community. Mm. We don't have anything like that in education provision. We are on the other side of the moon from that. We live in a world in which you and I work in a world in which internal processes are presumed to be proprietary secrets. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you can't do science that way, right? I can, I can maybe jack up a company valuation that way, you know, but I, (laughs) but I, but I can't build a cumulative science of learning that way. Yeah. The discussion about metrics and how the new learning provider sector may be really myopic in looking at very short-term outcomes reminds me of another quote from the report that, that stood out to me, which is that about how the metrics used by, by legacy colleges and universities. And I will quote, quote the report here. So quote, inherited data systems tend to be organized around measures of institutional success retention and graduation rates in colleges and universities, for example, rather than measures of success or progress defined by learners themselves. And that that really jumped out to me because it's something that I think a lot of ed tech companies wrestle with as well. They, They know that, you know, learners in very informal learning environments are often held to standards like, you know, completion rates, graduation rates, year over year retention, 
that are really designed for formal learning environments. Tell us a little bit more about how, you know, as a field, both new providers and legacy schools might move more towards this this lovely concept of, you know, measures of progress defined by learners themselves. Yeah, and here's a, I'll come at that in a, in a slightly different way, perhaps. Sure. You know, consider that in the U.S., the relationship between biography, education, and work is completely anarchic. Let me tell you <laughs> what I mean by that. I mean that, you know, when a 17-year-old, you know, confronts her final year of high school, and considers the very fateful next steps in her educational and occupational career, she has essentially no map for, for, for how, to, how to do that. And she relies entirely on the organizational context in which she and her parents are living to do that, right? That's why families send their children to private schools or public high schools with elaborate counseling programs. And that's frankly why families send their children off to colleges and universities that kind of tame that anarchy for them, right? Mm-hmm. So, you know, if I send my child to the uni- you know, to, to the University of California at Los Angeles, I can go to bed at night sort of knowing that, you know, a lot of the uncertainty that would, will confront my child has has been removed from the equation, right? I know who her peers are going to be. I know what kinds of educational options are available to her. I know what kind of career counseling she's going to get. And this part of the United States of you're on your own, right? Because we don't have a you know, we don't have a comprehensively managed human capital system like in the Nordic countries, Switzerland, Austria, Germany, the UK, right? We instead, you know, give people this sort of staggering array of, of, of choices and basically tell them good luck. And so there's, you know, th- there's a lot of risk of making the wrong decision in, 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 in that context. And so, you know, one of the things we might think about is if we wanted to, you know, if we wanted to maintain the benefit of an open educational market, right, with a lot of different options, right, but we wanted to reduce the amount of risk that's associated with too much choice, you know, how would we do that, right? So what kinds of informational systems could we make available to people, you know, beginning in their teenage years and, you know, throughout adulthood that would sort of help them think about how to connect their own ambitions, right, in time two with the with the work and learning opportunities that are available to them in time one, right? We don't, we don't have that kind of map for people in the United States. And we certainly don't have a data ecosystem that would enable people to, to, to place themselves, you know, in this ecology and, and consider, you know, investments in their own futures on the basis of some kind of systematic evidence. So, you know, that's what we were sort of, hinting at with that sentence that you quoted is, you know, rather than thinking just in terms of, you know, does program X, you know, complete a high enough proportion of people who enter it, it's like, how might we help people make sense of the options that are available to them and and connect cause and effect in their own educational trajectories in ways that would be less risky for them? There was a college scorecard 
project from the federal government at this point, I guess it would have been six to 10 years ago. The administration. Yeah. Exactly, that, that was designed to, if I understood it correctly, to try to begin to have that conversation, to put all of those incredible array of options for a graduating high school student or for somebody looking to go back to, to mm-hmm. school onto a sort of relatively level playing field with relation in relation to the metrics and the, and the outcomes. And, you know, it also puts me in mind of Raj Chetty's work, which That's was right. Also, right about, about, um, you know, which schools are useful for sort of economic mobility for getting, for moving students from the lowest quintile to the, the higher quintiles of, uh, of income. Mm-hmm. I guess my question around that is that, you know, it felt like the project like that might in an ideal world, those might have really moved the needle and sort of given people some of the information they need to make wise post-secondary decisions. But I don't know if they've really, if they really have, I'm I'm not sure. Let me, let me underline your phrase, try to begin to have that conversation. I I'd say that's pretty much right. So, and again, this is this is a place in which the the legacy sector, you know, I would say the conventional colleges and universities don't have terribly much to brag about. So, the Spellings Commission report of of the early two thousands had surfaced a clear call for the creation of a student unit record system in the United States, which which would enable longitudinal observation of how people accumulate academic credits as they move across institutions over the course of their lives, and then link that link that educational attainment with earnings. And it was the higher education lobby that that made the creation of a student unit record system illegal. In in Congress in, in the name of privacy, which on my view was to unmitigated just dodge of public observation, right? Mm-hmm. Because because higher education leaders recognized appropriately that all that all of the news in such a system would not be good. And they sort of successfully blocked the, the creation of, of, of that kind of of that kind of endeavor. You know, begin to start to have the conversation, you know, the, the projects <laughs> that you mentioned were all are all organized on the basis of schools that receive funds under Title IV of the Higher Education Act of 1965, which is essentially Pell Grants and subsidized loans, right? Mm-hmm. Any provider that doesn't make use of those of those financial instruments does not report. So, and this is something we call for expressly in our project, right? The Mm-hmm. The Courseras, the Two Us, the the Guilds, the General Assemblies, right? All of these organizations that don't receive government funds also do not report any information about cost or outcomes, which effectively makes it impossible to 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 make informed public policy for this sector. So, you know, that's that's the kind of infrastructure that we're calling for, right? A kind of recognition that. You know, if we're going to tame the beast of of the ed tech sector and on my view, you know, make it more cumulatively effective, both for learners and for investors, we're going to have to create some sort of mechanism for for knowing what works and what doesn't, why, under what conditions for which, you know, for which kinds of men and women. I'm I'm not asking Washington to do that. I'm, I'm in fact, we're we're calling on 
alternative providers themselves to take the initiative to imagine what that infrastructure might look like and how it might be paid for. Yeah, it's a great point. And, you know, I think the, the some of the uh, new providers you named, you know, to you, Coursera, Guild, General Assembly, they each do have some version of a public outcomes report where they where they explain, you know, what percentage of their yes, income. That's right. That's right. So, so, but, but what is, I think, drastically missing is any kind of alignment with each other. So there's no way that any student per prospective student could look at general assembly's report and Coursera's report and to report and guild's report and decide with any kind of, you know, accuracy, which one is more, is most, you know, is most effective for people like them because, yeah. Each of the each of these instit- each of these companies does it under their own logic with their own data, and it, there's just no oversight from anybody. That's right. I mean, another way of saying it is it it, it takes it takes a lot of cooperation to compete. Mm. And you know, think for example about intercollegiate or Olympic athlete- athletics, right? You know, in order for there to be national or global sports competitions, right? Participants have to, you know, accede to a, a fairly elaborate, you know, set of, of, of agreements that enable competition to happen routinely, right? Yeah. And we don't have anything like that in the post-secondary space, right? We, we have... Um, we have a lot of, we have a lot of, it's something that's kind of more akin to like a medicine show or a circus where, <laughs> you know, everyone's sort of vying for eyeballs and, you know, mm-hmm. making promises, you know, on, on, again, on the basis of something called results, right? The mechanics of which are, are almost never revealed, right? right. And, you know, I, I, I sort of prefer to like have a educational ecosystem that looks more like, professional sports or the global Olympic system than like a circus or not that those, you know, not that coordinated markets are ever perfect by any stretch, but again, they, they reduce risk and they reduce risk, especially for the most vulnerable participants. Yeah. And, you know, I have every faith that the, the ed tech sector has the smarts and the capital and in fact, even the business incentives to do this, but it is a very substantial collective action problem, right? Yes. And that's what I mean. I think it, it requires a certain degree of maturity, either for, for at businesses at a certain stage in their development or perhaps private capital that has a, a certain civic orientation to, mm-hmm. you know, to, to try and intervene in sort of, you know, creating that, that architecture. Yeah. And again, this is where I think philanthropies are might especially be well positioned to do this, but they would have to get over their, you know, short-term results orientation as well mm-hmm. to take this long view. So we, we've been discussing the sort of interplay between a few major actors in this system, you know, new education providers, legacy education providers and universities and the government which can be, of course, state and federal government. Mm-hmm. One fourth player in this ecosystem that the that the Stanford report really, or the the Working Learners report, hones in on a little bit is is employers. And yes. you know, yes. one thing that's come up a lot, and yeah, one of the things that, that's come up a lot in on this podcast is, is the fact that you know 
the number of learners who, you know, overtly state that the main reason they are attending post-secondary education is for employment and, and outcomes for career yes. outcomes has just risen steadily for, for decades. It's just now it's, it's, it's a very open, you know, that's exactly that people explicitly say, I want to get a degree so that I can get a better job or a job with higher income. And yes. the, so, so let me just frame this question and forgive, forgive a little bit. Actually, no, go ahead. You can, you, you can respond directly to that. I have a, I have a, a longer I question. No, go ahead, Alex. Oh, sure. sure. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, the report states how social scientists have extensively studied the how formal educational credentials work, BAs, MBAs, PhDs, professional degrees, but that nobody has really made sense of the value to employers of these alternative credentials. That would be, you know, boot camp courses, cohort-based courses, MOOC certificates, industry certifications, and, and, and other new learning options. And the report goes, you know, goes further, and I, I think in a really really insightful way and says, well, the, these, the value of these new learner opportunities, these new learning opportunities is totally dependent upon employer behavior. Basically, you know, you would only really invest in a boot camp if you believe that on the other side of that boot camp, employers will look favorably upon that experience for you. And what, what, always, what always strikes me, oh, <laughs> go ahead. Do, do you want to jump in? No, go ahead. It's just such a long, such a long question. Okay. So what strikes me about this is that there, there may be a little bit of a sort of zero sum competitive aspect to, to this, which is that, you know, if we were to truly find out what employers value and we found out that employers continue to value traditional degrees from legacy colleges and universities, well, that overtly threatens the value proposition bootcamp providers or MOOC providers. And, and alternatively, if employers overtly value alternative credentials more, it obviously would threaten the value proposition of, of often higher cost degrees. So I'm just trying to get my head around how that kind of collective action might work when the results may really sink one of the two sides of the education industry. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. No, this is very... And, and- Another a way to think about a credential is it's it's the it's the product of a negotiation between three parties, right? A credential provider, a learner, and an employer, right? Mm-hmm. Credential providers can make plenty of money if they just convince learners to acquire the credential. And they can even be agnostic. You can have a perfectly fine business model as long as you get enough people to sort of enough learners to purchase the credential you're selling. The value of that credential, however, goes way up, right? If employers take that credential as, as a marker of, of value to compensate. And that's where the ambiguity in the current ecosystem, you know, currently is. And frankly, I think what you pointed out is is why the ambiguity is, let me do this again, and frankly, that ambiguity is why I think elite legacy providers are so ambivalent about alternative credentials. You know, if, if Harvard and Stanford and MIT begin to purvey a wide range of institutionally branded certifications, it, does it contribute to the zero sum dilemma that you were just just talking right. about? 
And on my view, the jury is still out on that, that elite providers, you know, are still quite equivocal about their role in the alt-cred domain. But it's also the case that, you know, for the for the holder of an alternative credential, the 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 exchange value of that is entirely dependent on what happens in the in the in the personnel office. And and that too is a black box for the applied science. We we just don't know how how employers are are making sense of different kinds of certifications and credentials. And it, it, it also might be an ideal terrain for applied research, essentially, you know, longitudinal experiments in which alternative providers, firms and researchers might cooperate to develop, you know, credentials that, that truly do have that exchange value. So what we were emphasizing in the report is, you know, don't just focus on the, the learner and provider, you know, part of the triangle, you know, think also about you know, how employers are, are, are variably using credentials to, uh, to staff their firms. Yeah. You know, you are the co-director of the Stanford Pathways Lab, and you've, you've done a, a huge amount of research about informal education pathways, alternative credentialing. And one of the recommendations in the report is that working learners can pursue a number of different pathways that can be, you know, micro pathways or Mm -hmm. macro pathways. Tell our listeners a little bit about this concept of pathways and what it means to you and and, and how it relates to the ed tech landscape. Yes, the report suggests that the pathways heuristic might be a useful way of organizing inquiry in this domain most broadly. What is a pathway? It's a sequence of educational and occupational experiences that has a, a cumulative character. By that, I mean, you know, the, the move I'm able to make as a worker or a learner today is predicated in part on the moves I did or did not make, right, or the moves I was allowed to make throughout my prior history. And so sort of making sense of activity in any particular moment, one needs to sort of think about the, the past that sort of brought the learner to that, to that circumstance. We use the image of a, of a person in a maze to describe this in some sense, too. A path is a function of my, you know, navigating a complex system, but it's also a function of the, of the opportunities that that complex system enables. And, you know, that's the imagery that we've been seeking to advocate for, just to sort of recognize that people are accumulating educational and work experiences over a much longer period of their lives than in the past, right? So we need observational mechanisms that enable us to kind of see how people move into and out of educational opportunities, into and out of occupational positions in a sort of dynamic way. And we need to be able to observe that at the individual level, right? Alex Sarlin's career, but also at the aggregate level, right? Uh, careers of people like Alex Sarlin <laughs> in order to, in order to kind of, you know, you know, make sense of the character of the entire ecosystem. There's this concept of the open loop university. Yes. Stanford. Exactly. Another Stanford, a great Stanford concept and metaphor that, that I think speaks to 
some of what you're saying about how in a, in a, in a, you know, these all come together in a hundred year lifespan. If mm-hmm. people have longer working lives, they, the idea of front loading all of the education into the first quarter of somebody's life and then expecting them to keep up with the changes in society for the next 75 years mm-hmm. feels very naive. So what might it look like? For, you know, to have this open loop concept where students can come back or can or any anybody in a society can make themselves into a student either simultaneously with their work or take a, you know, learning sabbatical, which is another, you know, ed tech term. Mm-hmm. I'm curious if you could just talk a little bit about, you know, what that what a society that looks like that would look like. Yeah, that's right. So again, let's, let's let's remember that we will continue to live in the United States of your on your own, by which I mean, you know, we, we won't expect the United States to develop a political economy of master planning or centralized regulation that just does not comport with our political culture. But I but I'm hopeful that we could we could we could collectively build a a new map of work and learning opportunities that would presume that the that the pathways of of prior citizens could inform our you know could inform present and future citizens about how to organize their own work and learning lives right you know could create could we create some you know some some evidence informed map for how certain kinds of life destinations are linked with uh, particular educational trajectories. And, you know, sort of ra- rather than letting those, those journeys unfold anarchically, could we provide people with, again, with maps, compasses, um, telescopes, binoculars, you know, aerial views that would equip them with, with you know, real information that would enable them to connect cause and effect as they plot their own futures. Yeah. I, I love the anarchic metaphor. It, I, I think it's really dead on for the sort of emotional and intellectual tax that, that uh, high school students and parents or anybody trying to, you know, advance their education as an adult has to, it, it, it does feel like anarchy. You, you know, there, there are these interesting scenarios right now where you'll go to a website that portends to sort of tell you all, you know, the, the, the top, the top programs in your particular field, but the, the entire website is run by one of the providers at, you know, behind the scenes. So a lot of the recommendations are coming from, you know, are, are targeted. There, there really is a sense of sort of this, uh, bizarre, you know, bizarre market, bizarre in the sense of a marketplace where you're sort of getting pitched from every direction of this is going to be the most, the most effective experience. This is going to be the best ROI. This is going to be the fastest. And I think, you know, learners are so under-equipped to make, to make decisions. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's, it's, uh, it's interesting. I, I, I do think it's a, you know, this is one of the ways in which this is a civic challenge as much as a scientific one, Alex, because mm-hmm. I fear that, you know, Americans aversion to something called tracking <laughs> has, has prevented us from, you know, providing this kind of baseline information to, yeah. to, to people. So what I mean by tracking is we're very averse, at, you know, we're constitutionally averse to the notion that, you know, that 
that people should categorically be placed on different pathways by virtue of their educational accomplishments early in life, as is often, as is the case in more sort of master planned <laughs> economies or human capital systems, shall we say, the ones that are common in Northern and Western Europe. So we don't like that. And we celebrate something called choice. But I think we we forget, as you said, that, you know, that, that, that relying too much on choice creates these sort of overwhelming <laughs> cognitive and, and, and psychic challenges for people. And it, it actually ends up systematically rewarding people who have you know, access to information and expertise that enable them to get around that uncertainty, right? So, you know, too much choice can be as, as sort of inegalitarian and discriminatory as, as too little choice. And so the challenge is sort of figure out a mechanism for helping people navigate their lives that, you know, is as equitable as possible and, and information driven as possible rather than anxiety, rumor and advertising driven, which is world that we currently live in. Yeah. There have been some fascinating studies about how students from underrepresented backgrounds make their choices of what school to go to. And it often the, the decision processes have a lot to do with, you know, how close physically close you are to the school or whether you knew somebody else who, who went there or, you know, it's, it's these heuristics that are so divorced from the type of college scorecard, you know, beautiful, information data driven decisions that, that I think we all think about. Imagine an ideal person would make. Right. 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 So, you know, I, I, I have a final question. This is this, I could talk for hours about these topics and I, I can't believe how much ground we've already covered, but I have a final question specifically about ed tech providers. And, you know, one of the other really interesting recommendations in the working learners report is that for new learning providers, you know, they should recognize that while they can offer, you know, quote, nimbleness and on the ground know-how, they really might want to think about partnering with legacy colleges and universities that offer capacity for scaled research, including the type of longitudinal research you mentioned, and scientific and instructional training. So I'd love to hear a little bit about that type of partnership, the, the nimble ed tech company and the science scaled scientific legacy college university coming together to, you know, what, what does that look like now? If you have examples and what might that look like if, uh, if they, if these groups were to work together more effectively? Well, I'll confess, Alex, I, I read this question in your notes in advance and must confess that I can't give you a single example of the <laughs> longitudinal research-focused tech firm research university collaboration that we're calling for. I have been trying to, to address that need for the last decade here at Stanford, and despite some effort have, have, have not yet succeeded. If you or your listeners, you know, know of successful examples, I would be eager to hear of them. Stanford and MIT and other universities have long legacies of industrial academic partnerships for radio and communications technology, for defense technologies, for healthcare and pharmaceutical science, for climate science. We have not figured out how to have industry academic relationships in the learning and education space. 
And I think we haven't figured out the, the, to, how to, how to manage the, the upfront conflicts of interests that would make those relationships doable. But I, but I think they're, I think they're absolutely possible. And on my view, a priority for this applied science, what might they look like? I think they would, they, they might look like the kinds of relationships that happen routinely on, in the engineering side of research universities, which is that firms recognize that research universities have a long-term view of a problem, and they also have the capacity to train researchers and practitioners that are of sufficient value to the firm that the, the business partner is willing to both put some capital into the relationship and have some of the science that's done be, be open science. Reciprocally, the university recognizes that the firms have the understanding of the space and the service and the access to learners and users mm-hmm. that we wouldn't otherwise have. And you would create a, a, a way of doing academic business that sort of recognizes the reciprocal assets and limitations of the, of the project. We can do it. It's taking a little longer than I thought. Um, but, you know, eager to engage in, in conversation. Yeah. To have, but we can do it. It's just taking a little longer than I thought. And I'm happy to say that several conversations such as this are, are now underway. That's terrific to hear. And let's take that as a challenge to our listeners to try to bring that, that world into, into existence. As I just move into the very last question, I have a, I have a couple of brief examples of where this may come from. I don't think they have happened quite yet, but you know, one thing that we've started to see over the last couple of years is some of the sort of large, EdTech providers that work directly with universities, places like to you and some of the OPMs and Coursera and others. Actually, you know, I won't get into this. This is a, this is a whole thing. I'll, I'll, it, yeah, we can talk about it offline, but I think that there are some people who really want to make that happen and are trying to sort of set up long-term relationships with individual universities that may include some research arms. Like, you know, you see Coursera with Illinois's, MBA program that it's now they're so deeply entrenched with one another that, that you know, they can actually measure over time, yes. you know, yes. or, or to use relationship with UNC or with um, Syracuse. I think they're starting to starting to build the, that type of deep long-term relationship that may lead to this, but I, yes. we can cut that part out. It is interesting though. Really interesting. It is, right, it so- is really interesting. I mean, yes, yes. Off the record, it is like, yeah, this, I thought this nut would get, this is off the record. I thought this yeah. cracked a lot sooner than it has, but I don't know of any successful industry affiliates program, for example, in space. We've 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 tried a couple of times here. We haven't figured out the business the business value for such things. But. Yeah, that's strange. Okay, so I'm going to just launch into my my final two questions. My my okay. outro. This has been a, a really deeply, deeply interesting conversation about, about education and sociology and how, you know, American society builds its educational landscape. You know, I asked two final questions of every podcast guest. First one is, you know, what do you see as something very exciting in the ed tech landscape right now? What's something that has caught your eye and you'd love to share with our listeners? 
Well, it won't be a surprise to a lot of your listeners, but the the movement to make college education a portable benefit of employment, as represented by organizations like Guild, Degreed, and the ASU Starbucks deal, I think that's a, a, a very important move in the history of the negotiation between labor and business. It's sort of, it's it's reconfiguring the relationship between higher education, labor, and and employment in ways that I, th- I, I think could have sort of far-reaching consequences for the way social welfare and, and, and the educational social contract in the United States is imagined. So I'm following that, that movement very closely. That's a, that's a great answer. And Amazon is going to jump in in one way or the other. And I'm very curious. <laughs> yes, they, they are. Yeah. They'll, they're either going to wall the garden or make it portable. And it's going to be a very consequential as the, as the biggest single employer in the U S I believe now it's a, it's going to be a big decision. The last question is what is a book or blog or Twitter feed that you would recommend for somebody who wanted to sort of dive deeper into some of the topics we've talked about today about education and, and sociology. Yeah. Can I give you two books? Of course. The first is by a historian at Lake Forest College named Christina Groger. It's called The Education Trap. It's a fascinating study of the the post-secondary educational ecosystem in the Boston metropolitan area between the Civil War and the Great Depression. And if, if, if you think we live in an educational wild west in 2021, I would present to you Boston Cambridge in 1901, which had at least as cutthroat an educational marketplace with ambiguity about about value and prestige as the one we live in today. And the other one that I'm in the midst of is Audrey Waters' new book, Teaching Machines, The History of Personalized Learning. Another American faith is that something called technology can revolutionize and make more equitable the education process. That's a dream that uh, a certain kind of wonk American has been dreaming for a long time. And I find both of these books to be sobering reminders of not everything is as new and shiny as Silicon Valley and environs imagine it to be. (laughs) Fantastic suggestions. As always, we will put links to those resources in the show notes for this episode. Professor Mitchell Stevens, what a fascinating and really, really compelling conversation about uh, about how education plays itself out in, in 21st century America. I really appreciate your time today. Thanks, Alex. And off the record, I, I fear you got the B minus Mitchell this afternoon, but maybe, there's probably enough in there to find a half hour. But, uh, <laughs> your questions were good and I learned a lot as usual. I mean, having these conversations really helps me sort of, you know, develop a, a language. So I really appreciate it. And uh, this one is especially important. So thank you. Thank you. And and the, the, the Stanford report on working learners that made by this consortium of thought leaders is available. Uh, we will put that link in the resources as well as links to the Map of Life, the Open Loop University, and a number of the other Stanford, really interesting Stanford studies and cross-university studies that have been done on this topic. Thank you, Mitchell Stevens. Thanks for listening to this episode of the EdTech Insiders podcast. 
If you liked the episode, remember to subscribe on Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. And if you're listening on Apple, please leave a rating and review so others can find the podcast. For more EdTech Insiders content, subscribe to the EdTech Insiders newsletter at edtechinsiders.substack.com. Oh, <laughs>